Uncaged. Uncaged. A show celebrating thought leadership from today's top business leaders. The program provides a voice to amazing executives from around the globe who are shaping the world of business today and mapping the path to the world of commerce tomorrow. And now, please welcome our host, Bant Breen, as we begin another Uncaged episode. Today, we're heading to the UK and speaking with Connor Burke. Hi, Connor. How are you? I'm very well, Bant. How are you doing? I'm, I'm well. I'm well. Uh, it's great to talk to you, Connor, and I'm sure you're going to be able to give us some timely advice on, on healthcare matters. Uh, Connor is the Managing Director at CPB Healthcare Consulting. He is an expert on healthcare and health tech solutions, and we'll really be digging into where technology and healthcare come together and some of the innovative solutions that are being developed and the pathway that are pointing forward for us in that area. But before we get to talking about CPB Healthcare and what you're doing there, Connor, tell us a little bit about yourself and and your career today. Sure, happy to, Ben. So, um, pretty long career, as you can tell, really, from my aged face, but about 30 years, uh, pretty much in health and social care. Um, I actually, strangely, I did uh, start my career with a degree in, in computer science um, and then decided that, you know, that really sitting in a software house, which at the time was kind of the only option where coding wasn't really for me. Uh, and so I went into uh, the healthcare environment. I trained as a therapist. Uh, and then I went into management and uh, within a number of hospitals, uh, as well as health systems. Uh, my my final proper job uh, within the UK healthcare system in the NHS um, was as a chief executive of three what would be purchaser commissioner organisations, buyers uh, responsible for a population of about 750,000 people, a budget of about a billion pounds and, and our job was really to get best value out of purchasing services on behalf of um, uh, our, our public or in, in the case of the US, the insured, uh, and really working out how do, how do those best delivered against uh, quality standards and in terms of uh, economic cost. So, um, so that's kind of my background. I got uh, liberated about three years ago. Um, and, um, and since then, I've kind of you know, turned, um, uh, I guess, gamekeeper turned poacher a little bit. And, and now what I do predominantly, uh, as well as having a number of advisory and non-exec uh, roles, it is um, I support and uh, give insights to emerging scale-ups and startups, uh, particularly in the digital med tech, health tech space, uh, helping them to really understand how the NHS works, because people think it's one organisation rather than you know, um, rather than 500, uh, really think about the culture, the people, the behaviours, relationships, how to access it, how to navigate it, and how to really position solutions that are going to resonate with people's problems. So um, that's kind of uh, what I what I do. Um, and well, well, you know, as an individual, Connor, that spent a, a significant amount of my life in the UK, uh, I could I could attest to the complexities of the NHS. <laughs> And the need for uh, your your solutions and services. So you know, today as we're living through this kind of complicated moment, 
What are you finding are the major challenges that companies are facing in that healthcare tech space? Yeah, I, I, I tend to work with companies that have a product. It's a pretty good product, at least as far as they're concerned. They may have one or two customers, either internationally, globally, and see the NHS as a real opportunity, given its size uh, and you know the way it's funded. Um, or they may already be in the NHS with maybe two kind of trial sites, case uses, but they're really struggling to grow. Uh, they're really struggling to think through how do they scale and, and how do they make their product more available across the system. So, you know, the first thing we do is kind of the first question I ask is, you know, so what's the what's the problem you're trying to solve for your customer? Uh, and that's sometimes um, a question they haven't asked themselves because they're so excited um, and, you know, emotional and invested in their own tech solutions that they kind of lost sight of actually let's focus on the problem um, and let's actually add value back to who's going to be the buyer. So. Um, what I what what we tend to find is that you know just having that initial conversation about really focusing on customers' needs, really delivering on the priorities of what a buyer wants, it is quite insightful for them. Um, and then what that leads into is really you know can can we help you or, or do you want to really understand how the buyers work and how they make decisions. And what you would need to do in order to better position uh, your offer in a more compelling, in a more emotionally invested way so that people feel more engaged in wanting to actually buy it. So um, those are the kind of things which sounds pretty simple um, to do. But when you've probably got, you know, in the order of five, six hundred, maybe even more than that, buyers across the system, all who have their own uh, cultures and relationships and all want slightly different things. And uh, clearly having quite a bespoke um, and quite a well-developed uh, go-to-market plan uh, and an ability to really target and segment how you're going to grow um, is, is what really makes the difference for a lot of these guys. I've found that in technology that a lot of times we have innovation in clusters, right? That there are specific areas that seem to, that the, the crowd chases. And I'd just be curious when, when you are working with companies that are trying to build a relationship with, as you said, the different organizations that embody the NHS, are there specific topics that are our high priority. I can only assume that anything right now related to COVID is probably the number one thing on everyone's mind, but perhaps I'm wrong about that. Well, I think it's anything that's related to the impact of COVID rather than necessarily directly related to minimization of risk related to, to, to COVID. I mean, clearly 12 months ago, the market erupted uh, globally as well as in the UK around, you know, a sort of rush to buy a whole load of solutions, whether they be on the softer kind of uh, side in terms of uh, med tech, um, like ventilators, PPE, all of that kind of stuff, as well as, you know, a big rush to suddenly nationally 
by um, you know uh, video consultation type uh, platforms for health healthcare providers. So uh, that was a big rush, clearly, um, to really try and minimise risk. And I'm sure lots of mistakes happened uh, in the buying of that. And and we've kind of now got to think through what we do next with those. I think currently the issue is as we start to emerge from COVID, in many ways, exiting COVID is a lot more challenging than entering it. It's quite simple to shut down uh, and then layer on relatively simple access solutions. What is now complicated is everything that we're going to have to deal with in safely exiting. So yes, the the immediate um, issue around how do we control infection and all of the technical tech solutions surrounding that, as well as all of the physical solutions around social distancing, reducing hospital capacity, you know, staff uh, welfare. Um, But actually, uh, I'm sure, as in uh, many other uh, countries, the UK at the moment now has an enormous backlog um, created in terms of uh, people that should have been seen over the last 18 months that clearly haven't been seen. So there's all of that in terms of understanding what is the risk related to what could be up to 10 million people uh, requiring some sort of intervention. Um, And, you know, what is the priority setting? So data will be key to that in really understanding somebody's relative morbidity uh, compared to somebody else's risk and trying to therefore prioritise them because, you know, it's going to take five to 10 years to effectively get back to the position we were in 18 months ago would be my my guess. Um, so there's that sort of stuff. There's the ongoing that's, issue. That's incredible that it's going to be, I mean, it, it, it probably shouldn't surprise me that uh, certainly the, the a vast majority of people most likely delayed medical visits if it wasn't urgent, if it wasn't an emergency. And so certainly the process of being on any list for any major surgery must have been delayed. And I can only imagine how complex it is to to essentially get those lists going again, those processes going again. I'm particularly interested in that video uh, health area. I feel like it offers so much promise on on those kind of day-to-day visits. but I don't know if it's being fully embraced. Certainly what we're seeing in the U.S. right now is that is more legislation coming in place now where uh, medical boards are supporting the technology, but they seem to be limiting it. So if you are a doctor in New York and you want to operate this way, you can see patients in New York, <laughs> but, but you can't see a patient in, let's say, Miami, Florida, right? So I'm curious to see how it's evolving for you. Yeah, I mean, it's um, the market was starting to emerge um, pre-COVID, but it kind of accelerated, albeit there was a national solution that was pretty made, pretty much offered to everybody in the NHS for free, particularly on the primary care side of, of things. So uh, that has been adopted, but I think there's a, you know, we're only at the beginning of that journey. And what clinicians are reporting is that actually it's added more pressure and workload into the system. So along with the people now that they could see again face to face, that they would see in a typical morning up to about 40, you know, patients, that a typical general practitioner uh, would see on their list. They also now have an extra burden of seeing 
people remotely through either text consultations or through video consultations. So actually their workload has increased by about 20, 25% because we've opened new channels. And what we haven't done is, you know, got productivity uh, right on this. Um, what I'm what I'm seeing is actually quite a lot now of new technologies coming through, like uh, AI and machine learning that are actually starting to do triage and symptom checking. So that if you, uh, Bant, were, you know, at home, not feeling well, um, you could put in your symptoms and go through a robot and that would actually start to determine your pathway of care. Do you actually need to see a GP? Could you go and see a nurse? Could you go and see a physiotherapist? Do you actually, you know, just want to go straight and have your bloods taken? So so that actually is starting to demonstrate quite a lot of value in a pro- better productive journey for both the patient, but also less demand for the clinicians. And I can only see those sorts of technologies uh, increasingly exponentially over the next few years as the, the data becomes cleaner and better and as the technology and the coding becomes much more reliable and much more effective. So with a system like the, the NHS, it, it, it appears that what I have taken away and learned from you is that there's not one decision maker here, that it appears that there are multiple bodies that play a role in the uh, procurement of, of solutions. So, I mean, how do innovators, how do tech entrepreneurs think about that? And is there a lot of difference between those different parts of the NHS um, on how they operate with innovation? Um, yes, the, there's quite a bit of difference. I mean, the, the actual um, settings are no different to anywhere else in the world. So you've got, you know, your kind of front door, which is your general practitioner sitting in the community, and you've got your hospitals. Um, and then, you know, effectively, you'll have a periphery of other types of community services. Uh, all of them are structured and incentivized and uh, remunerated uh, and reimbursed in slightly different ways. Um, so that in itself is quite complicated. And then sitting, I would say, around them is people like me who used to try and commission and procure services for all of those suppliers um, and from them in order to provide the most effective solution and integrate care in the most um, reasonable way for, for patients, users and insured. So um, it is kind of complicated because within that, um, it's not one single decision maker. Uh, and, and even if I am the decision maker, your solution still needs to be adopted in order for you to demonstrate value. So, you know, there are places where somebody like me might buy something, but then actually the hospital chooses not to actually implement it and drive it forward. So, so it's going to be really important um, for, you know, any sort of provider to really understand how all of that works. Um, what a lot of providers do is, you know, they'll offer something initially for a relatively low cost or, or on a trial basis and demonstrate the, the value uh, and run some sort of study to be able to, you know, um, show that it's cost effective, but also uh, provides, you know, quality improvement. And that's great. And that's good. But, you know, uh, the NHS has cottoned on to that. And, you know, it's very able to see through there is no such thing as a free free meal uh and so it doesn't guarantee you success so i think you know the really critical thing to to do is to to really target who you're going after to demonstrate the difference you're going to make 
and then to start reaching out and building up some of those relationships with with the key people, which isn't just about selling. Uh, it's about saying, actually, how can we really help form a, a better partnership uh, yeah. and be with and, you? And it sounds to me like it's a process that requires a true process. <laughs> it's, it's gonna, it will take it will take some time. I've been talking to folks about uh, how how one builds relationships, and you know, I I think that. In the absence of people meeting face to face in the real world, I think it's been a bit challenging to to build deep relationships. You know, I, I, I certainly think it's possible to operate efficiently from a day to day business perspective. Right. But but to build the types of relationships that ultimately I think what you're talking about is what, what, what would be needed here, really people that would understand a product or a service or a technology would go through the testing processes and the trial processes and then implementation and then scaling. And that, that is something that just doesn't happen overnight, correct? Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, like I say, by the time they come to me, they've, they've got the product, they've tested it, they know it works, but they're really struggling to, to, to build the relationships. Uh, and, and that's kind of where where I help, and and then what I do is I have a couple of colleagues that work with me who are more effective, um, you know, at doing the kind of selling stuff. So they've got a well-established network um, as former recruiters who have helped people in their careers find jobs, uh, and effectively what they do is leverage those relationships. So around a particular product or a particular segment in the market where they know they already have a trusted person that they can go to and almost broker. Uh, that sort of deal. So, so that's the, u- the the other unique bit is that it's not just advisory. It's not just you get a plan. Actually, then we help you uh, actually take that plan through to success uh, and help you um, to to move it forward. Um, you know, it the, it depends on the nature of the product in terms of how quickly. So we work with you know a couple of companies at the moment who we've been working with a year and probably one or two sales, but Equally, we've been working with, you know, a, a quite a transactional product and, and we've, you know, seen 20 to 30 sales in a relatively uh, short period of time over the last two to three months. And, and that's that's because the product really resonates with what the market reads right now. And so understanding that is really, really critical. And then being able to be very specific about who is going to be the buyer. So in a hospital, you know, you've got multiple influencers and buyers. It's not just the chief exec or the director of finance. You've got somebody there with a problem, like a director of estates or or buildings or facilities or a director of nursing, uh, and really, really helping them to become the advocate for 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 what you're selling is essentially what we try and do. Is say what is it that you need, and then they'll have the conversation with the chief exec or the director of finance about why they need. This solution. So, so that's kind of how it works. Um, the market's just getting so so busy at the moment in respect of you know investors. Um, we've seen more investments in health tech, I think, in the first six months of 21 than we've seen in the whole of 2020. So uh, globally, and it's just rocketing. So, I think having that differentiated approach to how you engage, rather than just the sexy solution and product, is going to be what 
what helps uh, break through into what is a complex area. Right. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point because uh, certainly I think there's a lot of investment pouring into the space, but the, yeah. the ultimate winners are going to be the ones that follow a, an approach uh, that really builds that usage and those, those relationships and those connections inside of the system. So Connor, I'm having a hard time believing that you're actually in England right now. As I look at this beautiful sunny day behind you, <laughs> uh, but uh, but uh, I, I'll, I'll take your word for it. <laughs> but well, I'm, um, yeah, but, on my boat, so, you know it is nice and sunny and calm. Oh, lovely, lovely. But I mean. Let's talk a little bit about how you've been able to operate during this period with COVID. You know, the the health sector has been under tremendous stress uh, just to deliver on the the needs of of the pandemic. And obviously operating a system around that must have been challenging. But uh, what are are your learnings about how to approach the, the system today during this pandemic? Yeah, it's been uh, it's been a really interesting year. So at one level, um, there was a mad rush in terms of the market, and like I say, there was a kind of national command and control reaction to let's just do everything nationally and let's just almost be you know like an armed force in the way that we manage the response to what was you know a very risky situation. Um, and and I think a lot of um, smaller uh, niche companies kind of um, didn't really, uh, I think some were lucky because they had a voice and they were able to access um, some of the national influences quite quickly, but others kind of got left behind in that, in that space. Um, what we found, uh, we, you know, we've been very, very busy during the last year, thankfully, in terms of you know, trying to help uh, people have the conversations about the value that they bring to the market. Um, so, so that's been good for us. Um, but you know, what what we found is that there's probably four or five real critical things that uh, people are focused on at the moment. Um, so, you know, there's <coughs> workforce resilience, which is really top um, uh, of, of the agenda within healthcare at the moment for obvious reasons. Um, and I think that will continue uh, over the next uh, few 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 years, um, particularly as the workforce starts to have choices about what they do next, whether they continue to work in healthcare, are they too jaded, are they burnt out, do they want something a bit uh, less pressured? Um, so I think retaining people will be really critical. But the productivity around back office uh, services and solutions that help you on board uh, people, help you get the most out of people in terms of productivity or health and well-being type solutions uh, for staff within high pressure services uh, are all kind of on trend at the moment and are uh, the market is looking for help in those sorts of uh, places. Um, I think, you know, we touched a little bit uh, on the other kind of big growth area around remote consultation and remote monitoring. Uh, so the first bit of that was kind of the video consult piece. Um, but that's just the tip of the iceberg in terms of, well, that's fine. You have a, you and me have a conversation, but what happens next? So, you know, I think this whole piece around remote monitoring and sensors and having smart devices in your home 
you know, whether it's the big boys, whether it's Apple or Google or Amazon or whatever it might be, I think they're all kind of looking at this marketplace now uh, and starting to venture into it in, in different ways um, from a consumer type sell, not necessarily a public services type sell. Uh, but I think both those markets will start coming together quite a lot. There'll be stuff that will be supplied for highly vulnerable people uh, in the public sector by public services and possibly the more con- direct consumer uh, B2C sell will be for those that, you know, probably are less at risk like you and me, but want something. So I can see, um, you know, a lot of um, tech now. Uh, there's a boat next to me that's full of smart tech. It runs off um, it runs off apps. Um, effectively, you haven't got any buttons. So um, I can see all of that happening in homes uh, very, very quickly over the next five to 10 years. We're working on a couple of products at the moment uh, that do um, uh, kind of remote monitoring via televisions and people not even knowing it's there, but being able to sense uh, movement, being able to sense something that's different from normal pattern and being able to issue reminders and as a communication tool to engage socially so you don't feel isolated. So well, I, think I, I think that that, uh, that that monitoring space is, it, we're just scratching the surface. I I look at how my sons use their iWatches and it's, I think if I, I don't, I know I don't have a representative sample, but they, I would say primarily use their iWatch for tracking health, you know, tracking uh, all the health monitoring capabilities of that device. And I think that's exactly what you're referring to, which is um, if we think of that sensor technology, that sensor technology is actually not new. I mean, that's a relatively old technology, but uh, certainly I suppose it's probably been uh, microed in some form or fashion, and now it's being able to be applied and categorized in terms of the data that it's collecting. But uh, you're absolutely right. People will be using that. And I think the other trend that you highlighted, the wellness, the just broader kind of work wellness area has been one that uh, thank God it's a focus. I, I imagine that there's going to be a lot of people that will find that they talk about this being the was it the 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 great resignation or something like that at least in the U.S. where people are changing their jobs and their lives etc. Uh, because they want more balance and the healthcare profession certainly has had a tremendous amount of stress over the last eighteen months. Uh, on top of a job that's already stressful, right? <laughs> so, so oh. yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I, I think that's all right. Um, and, and it's not about new technologies. I think, you know, when you think about, I mean, I'm going to sound quite disparaging now, but the NHS is still using, to some degree, you know, fax machines and, and pages. So, you know, it, um, it's not about the sexy new technology. It's about equipping people with the basic infrastructure and technology that might be around for the last 10 years, but applying it in a systematic way to release benefits. Uh, and so that's why selling, you know, the sexy new thing isn't always the best thing to do. Uh, it's, it's, it's more about can we build, you know, the foundation and then plug in later on something that, you know, that we need or want. Uh, and critical to whether it's, you know, the wellness agenda or whether it's the kind of sensory agenda and monitoring is the data. 
So I think the data is going to be absolutely fundamental. I mean, the, the, the good thing about the NHS is we're data rich. Uh, what we haven't managed to do at the moment is mine all of that in a way that connects it all together. Uh, but we're moving very strongly in that direction. Um, and we're seeing a lot of collaborations and partnerships emerge with life science companies, with pharma, uh, with med, uh, medical device type companies. And that's been accelerated through COVID, through things like vaccine generation, uh, where, where it's been almost the exemplar of how industry can start partnering with public sector organisations to make a real difference to you know, the public health of, uh, of a country. Um, and so I can only see again uh, that 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 genie is out of the bottle now, um, and you know leveraging data for both commercial benefit around product development, whether it's on the drug side or on the tech side, as well as what that will bring to better healthcare outcomes through better measurement uh, and targeting, is going to be really really critical, and you know. It's the old adage, isn't it, that, that data is the new gold? Um, yeah, I, I, I think, you know, you just mentioned something I, I think is quite interesting. I mean, the data area, certainly there's a wealth of that information and in, in how we analyze it and pull in, glean insight from it is going to be critical. And, and I'd say even more than insight, actions that can then be applied for people. But in the case of COVID, it has been quite fascinating because we have we have evolved from a period where it seemed like it would take absolute ages for solutions to come to market. And almost in, in this wartime moment, we've seen just rapid innovation, just unbelievable pace. Now, of course, we've seen that be challenged by some some factors that have come out where you know, certain certain providers perhaps had not considered all of the issues, but but the but the reality is that that pace in in general has been phenomenal. Do you think that there's been some great learnings here that that will now be applied in other areas, or was this just because we just poured tremendous amounts of money, capital, time? solve a, a crisis kind of a war moment is that- i think the, the money capital time helped um certainly um but i think it was just the suspension of the usual bureaucracy that probably was the biggest factor i mean i'm sure mistakes were made also in that but you know let's imagine 80 percent of it was done correctly and, and success which isn't unreasonable given the scale of what was um facing us so you know, I, I, I kind of think it was, you know, it was the the war mentality, wasn't it, of, you know, opening up the bomb shelters and creating the ordnance factories and all of that type of philosophy, but applied to, uh, you know, a pandemic. Um, my, my sense is, you know, the NHS was born out of World War II um, uh, and everything that came out of that. So, I, I think there will have to be, and there already is, a number of reforms that are starting to move forward. And the opportunity to grasp those and move them forward now is probably really critical because it builds on the goodwill about how people have worked together for a common purpose and actually shown it was possible. So there is a lot of belief in the system now that we can do this, whereas before I suspect there was some scepticism as well as some lack of motivation. Um, 
my 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 kind of slightly concern around that is people are quite jaded at the moment. Uh, they've obviously fought the war, um, and it looks like it's starting to you know we're starting to emerge from it. Uh, but it almost feels like the the bigger challenge now is going to be how do we reform? Uh, how do we get ourselves fit for purpose for what could be coming next, as well as actually start to transform uh, what are a lot of redundant and old legacy technologies. Um, so, so that's why I think it probably needs to be a slower pace. I think we're talking about five, ten years uh, in this, but I, but I, I, I think we are certainly on that journey. Um, and I think there's lots of things happening in the UK that probably are leading the way. Um, but I suspect it's a it's a global um, kind of journey that that we're all going to be moving forward. on. Yeah, absolutely. Well, listen, Connor, it's been amazing to have you on the show today. We've been speaking with Connor Burke. He's the managing director at CPB Healthcare Consulting. Uh, he is transforming the delivery and the future of healthcare. We've been talking about. A lot of the healthcare matters, bringing technologies and innovation to the healthcare system, the process that you have to go through, the areas that seem to be getting a lot of focus uh, right now, uh, the, the, the future that is going to be very focused around utilizing the data that has been being gathered and then applying that with uh, the use of technology in a much more effective way. Connor, it's been great he hearing your perspective on all of this. If someone wanted to reach you, where would they find you? Um, I'm on LinkedIn, so I think that's probably the easiest way to find me is just Connor, C-O-N-O-R-B-U-R-K-E. Uh, just put that in the search bar and uh, I should pop up. Wonderful. Well, listen, thank you so much and look forward to talking to you again soon. And I hope it stays sunny in, in England. I'm sure it won't, but thank you. Cheers. <laughs>